The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Two men with identities forged in the white-hot fires of the 90s comic book boom, now ready to re-examine the era where heroes became extreme and one magazine gave rise to a market of speculation. If you've got the guts, prepare to enter the world of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Greetings, geeks, and welcome to episode 80 of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics, the podcast where we re-examine the 90s comic book boom through the pages of Wizard Magazine. Wondering how successful Thor comics would have been if Odin had banished his son to Las Vegas to perform in an Australian Asgardian male strip show called God of Thunder from Down Under. I'm Adam. Joining us this time around is a film critic who writes for the rap and slash film. Hey, good work if you can get it. But he's also the co-founder of the critically acclaimed network and its myriad of podcasts like The Iron List, Thank Godzilla It's Friday, and my personal favorite, Cancelled Too Soon. As it turns out, he's a geek like us who knows his way around a comic book. It's William Bibiani, aka Bibbs. Welcome. Hello. Thank you for having me. It is an honor uh, to be on the show. You've had some very cool people on the show uh, before, including a, a dear friend of mine, Jason Inman. So I just I'm just flattered to be here. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's it's great to have you. And I, I will say I've been listening to your shows for quite a while. You yeah, actually found you because of your Generation X podcast that you did oh, wow. you that tv movie <laughs> we love it over here we did a full bonus episode about it so that was a delight yeah i when you mentioned one of my shows is called cancel too soon and uh we've spent a lot of time reviewing tv shows that lasted one season or less or sometimes only one episode and uh yeah that generation x pilot is a real treat it is I, such a treasure i still have my original vhs tape copy just right next to me over like here. recorded off a of tv Recorded off of TV. Wow, yeah. that's probably I probably have one of those in my mom's closet somewhere. <laughs> uh, but you also did a recent episode that I really enjoyed, just for movie fans out there. And my co-host Michael, who may or may not join us, we'll see how things work out. He's a big movie guy. But the Iron List you did with the best movie cameos was just an inspired topic, and so much fun. You had some great ones in there. Thank you so much. And that was a we. That's a podcast that we actually have our patrons over at Patreon.com/slash Critically Acclaimed Network. One of the many things they get over there is they can vote for episodes of the iron list and they pick a topic for me and my co-host to do like a competitive top 10 list of and they picked cameos and i was like that's neat actually because sometimes when you do one of those like best of episodes you only start talking about the best movies ever this isn't about the movie the movie can stink but it'll have the most amazing one minute cameo from a celebrity you never thought of before uh and that was a real treat that was a good deep dive into film history i loved it Absolutely. So go check that out, guys. But hey, you're here with us now, and we got to get the inside scoop on Bibbs and the comic book genre. So why don't you tell us your origin story? Story of my life. <laughs> well, I got some comics from my brother. He was going to throw them away, but he gave them to another. That's me. And then I read some Gru and G.I. Joe. And I thought, that's pretty good. I'd like to read some more. And then I got some more comics. And that's the story of my life. 
Amazing. That's our first musical origin story. That's fantastic. Thank you very much. But that's that is true. Like my brother was throwing away a bunch of like comics that he didn't care about and uh, and I cared. So I learned I actually learned to read on those comics. Oh. So I think the one of the first things I remember reading, and I don't remember which one was first, but like I actually remember being able to put together all the words was for an issue of G.I. Joe, with the Larry Hama original run. Awesome. Uh, he, he, No one told Larry Hama to half-ass that book. Like, he was like, no, no, I'm going to make it a real comic. I'm like, cool. Uh, and then uh, Grew the Wanderer, wonderful, delightfully subversive. And yeah, and I just really like comics and, you know, comics were more readily available at the time. Like my mom would go to a grocery store and she would be like, okay, listen, you're, you're being a real pain today. So I'm just going to sit you here in front of the comic book rack, stay, and I'll be back in five minutes. And that would be enough for me to peruse a couple of comics. And then I'd be like, um, Craven's doing some weird stuff to Spider-Man in this comic. Can we buy this? And my mom would be like, fine. And uh, yeah, it just kind of grew from there. That's awesome. So now, did you get to the point where you were going to comic book stores like during the big boom period? Yes, of course. Um, You know, that's one of the things that I think we've lost uh, is that we've moved so much into the direct market that single issues are just you you don't see them in the wild anymore. I think that's I think it's a two tiered system. I think you get people hooked by making things readily available to them. And then the problem is, okay, well, I'm trying to read all of Maximum Carnage, damn it. And it's like a 14 part crossover and I missed part seven and somehow my local thrifty didn't have part seven. They just skipped right ahead to parts eight and nine. I'm like, where can I find part seven? And so we had a couple of local comic book stores. Sadly, none of the original ones are still there anymore. And so, yeah, then I started going there more often but the the comic book store uh trip was considered like a special thing like we didn't do that every day so a lot of it was just kind of willy-nilly and that's actually one of the things that led me to wizard was that it allowed me to keep up with a lot of comics when my ability to convince my parents to buy me comics was somewhat limited and i would be lucky to get three or four a month Interesting. Okay, so now is there something in Wizard, whether it was like a regular feature or like a story or a pack-in that you remember? Well, I, I read Wizard a lot, and I was very, very fond of it for the most part. And the things that I think I remember the the most, one was the dreamcasting section. And I was such an impressionable young kid. Like if Wizard Magazine told me that Glenn Danzig would make a good Wolverine, (laughs) I would be like, yeah, well, obviously he would be the best Wolverine. These are experts. Experts are telling me this. So for years, I will say Glenn Danzig is the only good person to play Wolverine. And that was ridiculous. One actually bit I remember I had in my high school, like freshman year, uh, we had a career day and people's parents or people that they knew would come in and they would talk about various career options. And we were lucky, actually. We had like um, Glenn Turman, uh, who uh, is an actor. He was in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. He was in Gremlins. He came very close to being Han Solo. Uh, he was there to do like the acting thing. That was really cool. But one guy was, I was like, I was, I, they just said like magazine writer. And it turns out it was a guy who wrote for Wizard. And I cannot remember his name for the life of me, but he wrote a regular column and it was literally like the column on the last page that was like a last minute like interview or something like that Uh I I can't remember what it was called but I always had a bit of affection for that because he seemed like a nice guy and he described working at wizard and working at wizard seemed cool so neat 
Yeah, you're joining us in a period where they had just discontinued those interviews. Like that, they, they okay. had just switched over to now we're talking about comics history instead. Oh, wow. That's cool, though. And if you had to pick just like one comic that is quintessential 90s to you, you're like, oh, everybody was uh, talking about this. This is the one I was always seeing, whether it was in Wizard or just when I'd go to the store. Is there one title that stands out to you? Uh, that is a good question. Quintessential 90s comic. I mean... Hmm. For me, the quintessential 90s comic is Sam Keith's The Max. I think The Max was the absolute epitome of everything Image promised to be. Image is comics in the 90s for me it was actually like people realizing that the that the system of marvel and dc which produced a lot of great comics no one's pretending otherwise and we're seeing a lot of this now we're talking a lot about the various strikes kind of designed to screw over the workers in a lot of ways and these guys who were their names were selling the comics their talent was selling the comics you could have rebooted power pachyderms with todd mcfarlane drawing it and it would have sold a million copies they absolutely deserved a piece of what they created so they created their own thing but i remember reading the image comics and even back then when my standards were a little lower i was a little disappointed in the actual quality of the writing for the most part the art was amazing but i think the only image comics that started out with like really strong writing were i actually just heard you joke about this but eric larson's savage dragon which had a sense of humor and actually a pretty good sense of pacing a lot of really solid well-developed characters initially and then sam keats the max but the max in addition to having wonderfully expressive, unusual art for the time, was a story that was actually genuinely about something. It was complicated, it was challenging, it was deeply emotional, it had excitement, but it was way more of like a A24 horror comic, to use a more of a modern thing, if anyone hasn't read it. And there are parts of it that I think would probably not be told the same way today. But when I thought to myself, oh, all of these brilliant artists are going to spin off and do their own thing, part of me thought maybe they do something a little bit more personal. And I think Sam Keith was the only one who really did something personal and powerful, at least at first. Like, I just think, you know, Youngblood was fine. Spawn, I think, had a good start. And then they just got sloppy with how the story progressed. The Max was the one that just seemed right out of the gate to be fully formed. Yeah, that's great. Well, yeah, I think uh, maybe the secret sauce in that was that they had, uh, you know, William Mesner Loeb's actually writing it. So you had a, a seasoned yeah. writer writing the book, not the creator and artist also writing the book. So I think that works out in a big way. That's absolutely true. And thank you for giving credit to William Mesner Loeb's because I absolutely should have. It was not all Sam Keith. That is such a trap to fall into when you're talking about image comics. So yeah, William Mesner Loeb's brilliant writer. Sam Keith was definitely a part of it. But yeah, it was a great combo and that was a great comic. Absolutely. All right. Well, hey, you know, one of the big things in Wizard Magazine is that it got the fans in a frenzy. It got them excited so much so that they'd start doing some clickety clack on the keyboards and they were sending over some inquiries to Wizard. And so we're going to open up Willie Lumpkin's mailbag. So first up here, Adrian Langston of Decatur, Georgia, has a few questions that lead to 
Some classic wizard banter. This is one of the list letters that comes in so often. It says, Dear Jim, I have a couple of questions for you. Who drew the fake wizard cover of Blunt Man and Chronic in the movie Chasing Amy? Two, how many weasels do you think could fit down Rush Limbaugh's pants? Number three, who do you think would win in a fight between Thanos and Darkseid? Number four, my idiot friend thinks that Sam and Max could beat up milk and cheese. Hey, I love Sam and Max as much as the next guy, but there's no way Sam and Max could beat the invincible milk and cheese. What do you think? So this guy's all over the place. <laughs> a lot of questions. I, I used to love these questions in letters columns in the 90s. In fact, I actually submitted uh, a letter that was actually published in an issue of Freak Force that was like a list of like questions. And I remember one was a very 90s question, which was uh, there was a character named Super Patriot and like many superheroes in the 90s. Pouches aplenty, just pouches from here to tomorrow. Everyone had pouches. What I never saw anyone except Batman do was use the pouches for anything. And so I just asked, hey, what's in Super Patriot's pouch? And I'll never forget, Eric Larson replied, Tums. <laughs> and the older I get, the more I realize that's a very practical use for a pouch. So I love these letters with a lot of different questions because it gives the opportunity to be silly and also maybe actually expound a bit on the comics that we love. Yeah, you might learn something along the way. So yeah. first up, Jim McLaughlin decided he actually does want to impart some wisdom here. He says, actually, a couple implies two. You have four questions. So I'd say you have a few questions. Delightfully pedantic, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. fair enough. Number one, the cover, like all the Blunt Man and Chronic art in the movie, was drawn by Madman artist Mike Allred. Our very own designer Arlene So put the cover elements on to make it look like a real wizard cover. We actually had Arlene on our Ooh. interview series The Wizard Files and she was very proud of that accomplishment. That's so. very cool. Uh, number two, isn't Rush Limbaugh already a weasel? <laughs> it's so funny how that name means nothing now, but it was. Uh, so there's some people to whom it does and I'm going <laughs> to say it right now. Not enough weasels in his pants <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. Just get in there, scratch them, scratch them up. Yeah. yeah. Number three as to who would win in a Thanos versus Dark Side slugfest. And he chose Dark Side. No even description there, just Dark Side. And I'm like, yeah. Definitive. Like, like in a fight, Dark Side. Dark Side's going to beat you up. Yeah. And number four, I think your friend is indeed an idiot. And you are right. Sam and Max are merely playfully silly characters, while milk and cheese are 32 ounces of pure, unadulterated violence wrapped up in USDA-approved packaging. Milk and cheese mop the floor with Sam and Max any day of the week. So That I disagree with. Uh, oh. we, we've actually, we covered the Sam and Max animated series on Cancel Too Soon quite a few years ago now, but it's the episode's still available. My podcast co-host Whitney Seibold is a huge Sam and Max fan. He loves Sam and Max, and I adore them too, but not nearly as much as he does. But looking at it, I mean, Milk and Cheese, wonderful indie comic, absolutely agents of violent chaos. What I will say is this, Milk and Cheese are more cynical creations. Sam and Max do not lose. Sam and Max, they're like Bugs Bunny. Reality warps to suit their needs, as far as I'm concerned. Even if Milk and Cheese would appear to win that fight, they would like walk off into the sunset, shooting their guns in the air, very proud of themselves. And then like the real Sam and Max would like walk into the frame and go, hey, those guys look just like us or something like that. I think in the end, Sam and Max will prevail. Uh, Jim McLaughlin, if you want to offer your own rebuttal. Uh, I'm you sure he's very passionate about it to this day. <laughs> All right, Bims, why don't you take us into our last letter here? Dear sir, adamantium is a metal, right? So how do they mine it? If it's unbreakable, then you can't cut it. So how can they make it into things like Wolverine's claws? And that right there 
is why Wikipedia was invented. Because that was a question we actually would ask, like on like the playground when I was in elementary school. And now we just looked up on Wikipedia. And sometimes I wonder if the act of not knowing something, which is admittedly not important to know, was more entertaining than just knowing the answer. But to be fair, the answer in Jim McLaughlin is correct, is that adamantium is an alloy. And it is the combination of two metals that actually can be melted down. And as a result, once they harden, then, only then, is it indestructible. So you got to get it right the first time. You can't go, oh, snap, I forgot to, ah, now it's stuck. You know, not a lot of sculptors work in the medium of adamantium. It's just, it's very unforgiving. But, you know, but it would allow their works to last uh, well beyond their years. So let's get into it here. We've looked at the letters, but now we got to check out the headlines with our. Hey. All right. So <laughs> our top story, this issue, King of Revamps, reports that John Byrne has been tapped to redefine Spider-Man in an unnamed 13 issue miniseries that we now know becomes Spider-Man Chapter One. Now about these stories, which will retell early Spider-Man adventures as a jumping on point for new readers, Byrne explains, quote, they want me to redesign some of the characters, mostly to update the look of some of the villains without losing that special, quirky, funky Ditko quality. Burn series will debut in October 1998, and no other Spider-Man books will be published that month, after which only two of the multiple Spider-Man titles will remain standing, namely The Amazing Spider-Man and Peter Parker Spider-Man. As Marvel editor Ralph Macchio explains, quote, they're basically one bi-weekly book because the same guy will be writing it, although at this time, no writer had yet been assigned to the project. Now, another shocking reveal from Machio is that, quote, when things get started again in November, it will be with a new status quo. The month off will represent a year in which he's been gone as a character. Things will be different. So you mentioned Maximum Carnage earlier, Vibs. What was your yeah. relationship with Spider-Man of the 90s? Well, I love Spider-Man and Spider-Man uh, has long been one of my favorite comics and favorite comic characters and really just favorite characters in general. He was kind of unique amongst the, the superhero canon as a character who was just absolutely racked with guilt and anxiety. Like he wasn't like a hero because he was a tough guy. He wasn't a hero merely out of altruism. He was a hero because he was terrified of what would happen if he wasn't. And I, as a very anxious kid and as a very anxious adult, uh, always responded to that. And so I love Spider-Man. I kept up with Spider-Man a lot. And boy, did Marvel make it tricky to do that because they have had a ton of Spider-Man comics running concurrently over the years. And I remember very distinctly when this happened. And if memory serves... The year off ended with him actually retiring for a little bit. And then I think the the storyline that began was there was a new Spider-Man and Peter Parker didn't know who it was. Is that what happened? I actually have not caught up with this particular time period yet. So that's it's, something I want to see. It's, it's a weird era for Spider-Man because every single thing that happened to him felt like an event. There are ads at the end of this issue for, I forget what they originally called it, but it ended up becoming the Slingers. Yeah, identity like crisis. Identity was crisis. Yeah. It was a bizarre idea where Spider-Man couldn't be Spider-Man for a while. There was just too much heat on Spider-Man. So he would pretend to be another superhero, which in and of itself is kind of interesting. And he has to like do a new identity. But because there were four Spider-Man books running concurrently, they decided he would pretend to be four different superheroes <laughs> as if that made sense. 
Like I literally just never, they, they never successfully justified why he had to pretend to be four different superheroes. Like surely one would be fine. Right. Uh, and, and clearly the reason was they wanted to set, set up these like big superhero identities so that they can put other people in those costumes later. And that was the big plan, but it was a pretty bald faced on the way that they did it, even to me as a kid. So yeah, I was into what Spider-Man was doing. I had actually really loved the very similar comic that I think they'd already been doing at the time called Untold Tales of Spider-Man, yeah. which was written by, and I always am not 100% on his name, Kurt Busiek. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Okay. Kurt Busiek, brilliant writer, wrote many of my favorite comics in the 90s. And I think we'll probably talk about a couple of things he's doing in this issue. Untold Tales of Spider-Man was great. And I read some of jo- uh, John Burns. was it Spider-Man Chapter One? Is that what it was called? Yep. It yeah, wasn't Untold Tales of Spider-Man. So yeah, so no. Untold Tales of Spider-Man had ended a few months prior to John Burns doing this reboot, which I remember yeah. being slightly controversial at one point. People were just like, oh, you changed this. You know, but- he made a few like arbitrary changes to like Dr. Octopus's origin and stuff. And people got yeah. really up in arms. And I, if I were to guess, and I don't actually know how true this is, I think the attempt to retell the origin of Spider-Man in the comics in a slightly more contemporary way in order to sort of bring new audiences up to speed on like where the character began as opposed to the very strange things that were happening to him in the 90s. I suspect we're seeing here a kernel of what would eventually become Ultimate Spider-Man. Yes, that's what I was going to say. I, I think yeah. they were testing the waters. How how are they going to react? Yeah. And then that idea comes out later. They're like, well, yeah. we kind of already did this, but let's do it like actually super but, modern day. Because because if you because I think the fact that like there were so many people who cared so much about canon and still do. There were so many people who cared so much about canon that changing the canon ticked people off. But if you just create a new version that's allowed to be different, and even then it ticked people off. But at the very least, they couldn't be too mad because the actual original Spider-Man untouched you know he's still doing his thing hey speaking of new york hey we got a a web slinger just flying in here he's gonna be (laughs) ready to go hey michael a web slinger i don't know about that (laughs) no you're not getting out there and just like hitting the rooftops oh yes i'm all over the rooftops of brooklyn and and and, uh and queens (laughs) say hi to bibs hello how are you good to be here thank you for thank you for joining us <laughs> so Michael, we just finished talking about the uh, Spider-Man soft reboot retelling that John Byrne was doing Spider-Man chapter like 1. The Spider-Man chapter 1 thing, yeah. Yeah, um, so you remember that. But Bibbs, why don't you take us into this next piece here? Uh, in conjunction with this announcement, Wizard pulled their America online subscribers, oh, remember that, uh, to ask who should revitalize Spider-Man. Newcomer Joe Kelly, uh, who had been doing a lot of quippy dialogue on Deadpool, tied with Stan Lee, which is a bold That's pretty choice. impressive. I mean, he was still writing at the time. I think he was still doing the comic strip, and he hadn't yet done that. Like, just imagine DC crossover. Yeah, where he actually that's wrote. coming up. That's, yeah. a few, that's yeah. very the, soon. Yeah, those were fun. I liked liked a lot of those. I mean, they yeah. weren't necessarily all good, but they were interesting. It was just mm-hmm. kind of a fun experiment. Let's see here. Kurt Busiek was just edged out for a three way tie with twenty percent. Todd McFarlane got fourteen percent. Scott Lobdell eight uh, percent. John Byrne only got. 5% and Grant Morrison got just 2%. And that was very wishful thinking because this actual issue announces he had like signed an exclusive deal with DC. Right. The other category made up 9% of the final vote. Is there a comics creator you would have backed in this race? Could you imagine a Grant Morrison run of Spider-Man? 
Well, every, yes. everyone would be like mutated and psychotic. JLA, he, he like, you know, just got it down to its core elements and what it I, should. I, I think Grant Morrison, as people sometimes think Grant Morrison was this guy who would just want to change everything and like make everything bizarre. And I think he understood what was at the heart of a lot of characters. And when he changed the superhero comic, I think he changed it to try to make sure it aligns with the thing that made it work. I loved his run on New X-Men. I think his run of New X-Men is one of the best comic book runs, superhero runs especially, I've ever read in my life. And one of the reasons why, and he did some things I didn't like, but what I think he understood was that what made the X-Men relate to outsiders was different at the turn of the century than it was in the 60s. Yeah. And he wanted to update it. And, you know, there's parts of it feel a little dated, like, you know, the costuming is very Matrix, but at the same time, they felt like outsiders again. And they had really, at least not in a contemporary way, where there's an element of their personality that is actually, some people think is really cool and is actually like, you know, almost exploited. But there's also, you know, an, an actual like legitimate anger from like the newer students at the school that was a the young the older students were not familiar with and felt very contemporary i love that whole run i bet if grant morrison did spider-man i mean he'd probably have like a story that would blow our mind and be totally bizarre but i think he would probably have been pretty true to what made spider-man work at least on some level i have a lot of faith in grant morrison when it comes to that sort of thing i mean i don't well, like everything he's ever done, i hope but i, think I hope you like fine. it because the main villain in the deadpool movie is a villain he created in that x-men run cassandra nova the twin sister of xavier is going to be the primary villain is that did that get did that get announced? I didn't hear about that. It got leaked. Yes, it's, oh, okay. uh, well, it's been all leaked. over the the leaker people. That that that's the uh, the <laughs> primary villain of the movie. So well, Bibbs, we'll, you're we'll your professional critic. Yeah. Are you allowed to pay attention to any leak? Well, you, you're, I read what's going on. Personally, there's this whole thing about like, oh my God, there's this whole news about movies. And first off, there's a strike going on. We should probably be considerate about yeah. like how much hype we're allowing ourselves to build right. for products from studios that are currently being struck against in order to bait screw people over en masse. But even beyond that, even like in outside of that time period, I think a lot of those leaks, first off, I'm genuinely not sure who benefits from that information being leaked. Yeah. It's, it, I think it, it's only the people who can say, ah, I nailed it. I got it right. <laughs> and I'm like, that's not a good attitude to have about journalism. <laughs> uh, it, it, again, it doesn't like it, it'll, it'll, be, it'll come out eventually. I'm sure it's probably not a big deal, but it's probably I'd be surprised if it was a twist, but even so, I, I, I'm not a huge fan of that aspect of, of my industry. The oh, sort no, of no. It, I, I, I usually try to avoid the leaks yeah. and like the, I try to avoid the leaks and spoilers altogether. But like yeah. sometimes you can't entirely. Yeah. Sometimes you just go down that rabbit hole and you're like, well, let's see where this takes me. I was like, oh, you, you can't avoid it entirely. That's that's life. That's the Internet. That's social media. That's news cycles. Uh, I accept that. But it's not my favorite part of the industry. I have done scoops but my scoops have always come from on the record interviews with filmmakers mm-hmm. like I, I used to when i was doing publicity i would interview kevin feige and i would occasionally get something newsworthy out of him but i wasn't like going around behind people's backs or like that kind of thing for for the majority of my career and i it's not my favorite part it's not yeah. my favorite part but regardless okay maybe the movie will be good maybe it <laughs> won't i don't know i don't believe in i don't like hype because I think when we hype up and boy are comic book movies 
prime offenders of this. Yeah. When we hype up a movie and we start talking about everything we think is going to be in it or that we quote unquote know is going to be in it and how we think it's going to be. Like I see people like, oh, I saw this trailer. It's going to be the best movie of the year. You don't know that until you see it. My podcast co-host, Whitney Seibel, has a great line. He says, the time to get excited about a movie is after you see it. Mm -hmm. When you know it was worth getting excited about. Until then, I think it's just a curiosity. I'm curious to see it. I'm interested. I will see it. Then again, I feel that way about every single movie. I will say my Mm -hmm. vote for who I would want to revitalize Spider-Man is actually... uh, we wizard did this piece a few issues back where they were saying these are our dream creative teams right. and for our next story it actually ties in perfectly because it was ron mars is who mm. i would have picked because with what he was doing with kyle rayner sure. Lantern, i think he could have translated and done a great job on spider-man wizard had the same suggestion but listen to this story this is what i'm very curious because it falls into a similar vein of this conversation yeah. it says following a report in the previous month of a disgruntled fan leading a campaign to bring back the the deceased Hal Jordan and the entire Green Lantern Corps, Hal Jordan returns for a while. Reports that Rod Mars has written up a story for Green Lantern issue number 106, wherein current Green Lantern Kyle Rayner teams up with his Silver Age predecessor. But as Mars explains, the catch is that this is not present day Hal Jordan. This is Hal at the beginning of his career thrown into the present with Kyle. Apparently Rayner is returning from the 30th century and ends up 10 years earlier than planned and drops into the events of Green Lantern number 9 from the 60s and then accidentally brings Hal Jordan back to 1998 with them. Now, despite the timing of this story's announcement, Mars declares, quote, this story isn't being done to placate diehard Hal Jordan fans. And we'll just have to see if Hal or Kyle or both are still around when issue number 106 ends. That's Uh. how you tease the story. So do you guys have a favorite comic book time travel team up story like this because this is a common thing in comics to do yeah yeah that's actually interesting i don't actually hmm well while you guys are thinking i i do have one that stands out to me like initially what came up to me was there was a one shot that was spider-man meets spider-man 2099 Ah, i was was big into spider-man 2099 at the time and so seeing them come together was and, and switch the time periods they were in was awesome. But also in the Spider-Man universe, in the second wave of Amalgam, this was just mentioned in our last episode as well, but there was the Spider-Boy team-up where he is you know, interacting with this mashup of Guardians of the Galaxy and the Legion of Superheroes. And they're like doing all this time travel stuff with him back and forth and affecting reality in different ways. You know, yeah. and so anyway, that, that, those are both real fun. I think my favorite is, and actually it ties into, I think they actually tease it a little bit in a, uh, another article here with uh, Carlos Pacheco was Avengers Forever, which was a really awesome, super ambitious Avengers crossover kind of maxi series. I think it was like 12 issues of memory serves. And that was one where they were found a way to engineer a plot that required, I think it had to do with a mortis, but like all different lineups of Avengers from various different timelines had to sort of team up in ways that you could tell Kurt Busiek was just like, <laughs> <laughs> these two would never team up they're from entirely different worlds and there's so much continuity in avengers forever that it just makes your head swim but it's clearly clearly kurt music understood it so i just was able to just sit back and be like i assume this makes sense i just like that these avengers are in the wild west right now <laughs> and i was a big big fan i like that one a lot how about you michael i mean this is kind of an obvious one but did either of you ever read the the 20 20- 2008 run of cable 
where he's like protecting Hope Summers and he's leaping through different time periods to kind of keep her alive. He crosses over with various other mutants throughout it. And it is one of the best stories of the 21st century, this run of Cable, which goes into like the Messiah War eventually. But the run of just the Cable books is just impeccable writing, beautiful art, great Mm -hmm. storytelling. Each issue, he's kind of meeting somebody else to help keep hope alive kind of thing. Yeah, I remember, I didn't read that, but I actually remember they did a series, it was right after the big wedding issue of X-Men between Cyclops and Jean Grey, where they did a mini-series that was about them having their brains or their souls transplanted into two people in the future, Yeah, so that as different yeah. people, they could actually raise What is it, Red and Slick, or Slick and Red or something like that? Like, yeah, that sounds about right, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, that's kind of nice, actually, because the whole tragedy Cable was that he didn't really know his parents. So he was like sent into the future and stuff. And then it turns out he did. And I'm like, that's really nice. And I was like, that kind of neutralizes a lot of the interesting stuff about Cable and his relationship with his parents, actually. Maybe we didn't need that. But um, it was it was a neat issue. I remember the art being really cool. Okay, well, Michael, why don't you read this next piece for us here? Because you're kind of our, our resident major DC fan. So I thought it was going to say major Rob Liefeld fan. <laughs> Probably afraid of Liefeld uh, snatching away talent for his awesome entertainment imprint as he had just done with hot young artists from Marvel at this time. DC lines up big name exclusives confirms that Garth Innes, Howard Porter and Grant Morrison have all signed exclusive one year contracts with DC Comics to continue their work on Hitman preacher and jla this didn't seem to be a hard choice for any of the creators however for example howard porter clarifies about his ongoing art duties for dc's premier super team i wanted to stay with the book and besides there's not enough time in the day to do anything but jla i could probably imagine there's a lot of art in that book um (laughs) the artist does slyly add in though i'd love to do fantastic four after my stint on jla if marvel will have me (laughs) did you guys ever pay much attention to whether a writer was on staff with a publisher or just like a freelancer i think wizard is the reason i did Mm -hmm. actually because i remember when i was a kid like i would pay i would notice some of the artists who are like really distinctive styles that would follow them to whatever book they did but it actually was a little while until I started following writers with the same veracity. And I don't know if initially I would have noticed or even cared if a writer was exclusively doing books for Marvel or exclusively doing books for DC. But once they were, and that was becoming more part of like a news cycle, I started realizing that, wait a minute, that means we might never get to see what Grant Morrison would do with X-Men, for example. And that would be kind of a bummer. I would like to see what all of these writers who had interesting things to say, interesting story ideas, could do with different things. And so, yeah, I did pay attention. I did care a a little. It didn't matter too much, but at the same time, you know, I would definitely check out what they were doing if they're like all of a sudden like, oh, well, this isn't the actual example here, but there are certain writers that would be like, I was reading everything Mark Wade was doing. So if Mark Wade was doing Kazar, a character I had no interest in, I'm reading Kazar this week. <laughs> it helped that Andy Kubert was doing the art, but like seriously, like it was that Mark Wade thought the character had value. That's what interested me. So this was around the time I started focusing more on writers and what they were doing and not just the artists. That's cool. 
I didn't back then pay much into it, but now because so many of them either have their own imprint or they're jumping to other independent publishers to create their own stuff. I'm noticing it a lot more now that I'm just like, wow, like Scott Snyder just left DC and so on and so forth. It's like, wow, they're just doing their own thing and they don't, they're leaving the, the company that made them famous. Yeah. Well, it, for me, I guess I always looked at it like, I don't want to say I thought they were hack writers, but if somebody was on staff from Marvel and it felt like a job, like, oh, it's their job. They have to do this every month to get their paycheck regardless because they're on staff. Like that, I just figured like maybe they're they're not putting as much attention into the story. They're not as excited about it because it felt like when somebody was a freelancer, they were jumping on a project because they were excited. Like, hey, can I get this gig? I want to do this. Mm -hmm. Just like, you know, you have Howard Porter saying, hey, I want to do Fantastic Four. Can you get me over there? He would probably do a, a better job. And so I guess like that's why I, I always had the concern if somebody was on staff exclusive with somebody, I'd be like, eventually they might get burned out and they have nowhere to go. No, I think some of that also comes with our familiarity with the writers and how much attention they're getting and how much we're hearing them talk about these things thanks in part to wizard and what books were like building buzz at the time some of my favorite comics runs were actually more under the radar like i remember before warren ellis took over the title i think it was fabian nichiza had a good long run on thunderbolts that was for my money the best superhero book on the stands at the time but nobody was talking about it I, for all i know fabian nichiza was just like yeah, I'm just doing this fun superhero comic thing. Like, there's no particular sense that it's got any heat behind it. But every issue was exciting. There was always fun things going with the characters. There was always a fun revelation around the corner. It didn't call a lot of attention to itself, but not every work of art really needs to do that. So I'm interested in that, and I'm always excited when someone has, like, a real passion for something and they like, I really want to do this. But if it's just a job... It really only matters if are you doing the job really well. Like, I don't think we need to, like, necessarily really care too much about the author's attitude if what they're producing makes us feel good or warms our heart or excites yeah. us or just intrigues us. So I, I I worry about going too far down a rabbit hole with that, I guess. No, I, I think that's a very valid point because, yeah, because as fans, right, we immediately like jump to, I think they're thinking this and this is why it came out that way. But we're not the ones actually doing the work and we're not the ones who are in there. But I'm actually curious here as we close out uh, what your opinion is on this particular exciting bit of news. So why don't you close this out here, man? This is Guy Gardner's Gimmicks A Go Go special report. How bizarre! Tucci to customize covers for fans reports that Billy Tucci, the creator of She, is publishing She, the Art of War 1998 tour book with a blank cover. Why? As Wizard explains, the gimmick is this. Tucci, or a crusade artist of your choice, will draw an original piece of art on the cover when fans bring their copy and a purchase receipt to one of the 10 scheduled nationwide convention and store appearances listed in the book. And I remember when I was reading the magazine again, I was like, oh, that's actually kind of cool because that became a thing. Is this the birth of the Sketchcomber concept that became more popular later? I, it might be. I can't recall anyone doing it before this. 
Yeah, the only time that a blank cover was published before was for the Gen 13 13 variant covers. And one of theirs had, it was just the, the logo and then Grunge was there with the, you know, his little artist palette going like, hey, you know, draw your own cover, you know? And so Which is pretty I good. don't think that that wasn't attached to a gimmick like this where it's like, mm-hmm. oh, here's where we're going to be for you to get your sketch. And I would kill to see anyone who drew on that grunge cover. <laughs> I remember uh, Dan Slott used to write for the Ren and Stimpy comic. And I, this is before I knew who Dan Slott was, but I knew yeah. I liked this writer a lot. I was reading the Ren and Stimpy comic as a kid. And there was this one part where they would break the fourth wall and tell kids, hey, do you know how to make your own comic? We'll tell you. Get your comics, older the better, and cut out the panels. And then you can put them in any order you want. And then boom, you've made a comic. And... I think I saw Dan Slott tweet about this. It's just like, oh, I hope no one like ripped up a great comic. I, I'm just imagining the chaos that that could ensue. Um, but I would love to see if anyone actually drew on that grunge comic that themselves, not like somebody that. had to have taken it. I hope so. That's where J. Scott Campbell was like, hey, please, Jim Lee, please. You know, <laughs> that's what I would do. <laughs> yeah. The blank cover thing is huge now. Like it's yeah. mm-hmm. you see them all over conventions now. People yep. just, you know, or like the, they'll send them for commissions to artists now. Like it's wild. So. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, it's such a huge deal. Like in the last 10, 15 years, yeah. it seems like it launched here and then it was a lull until it caught up. So, all right, but let's check out uh, the main features of this issue with our table of contents. So Wizard 80 with a, an April 1998 cover date featured a whopping three covers. The first of these covers is a Thor cover by John Romita Jr. And now it's explained in their big book of covers that Wizard had plans to have Walt Simonson draw one for issue number seven, which uh-huh. ultimately was a double cover the first time they did Newsstand and Direct Market, which was Exo Manowar for Direct Market and The Flash for, you know, the newsstands. So that didn't happen because Thor wasn't that popular in the early 90s, but now he was being relaunched for Heroes Return, which we'll get into shortly. Now, the second cover was a Wolverine versus Hulk cover by Lionel Francis Yu, and the third was a South Park cover featuring Cartman eating cheesy poofs on the couch. <laughs> um, so this issue actually came packed with a John Romita Jr. Thor poster, so doubling up on that. I put that on my wall. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah, I, bought the, I definitely bought this issue. I remember this issue. It was backed by a Brian Douglas Ahern calendar, a sheet of South Park stickers, and of course, a Wizard-branded America Online subscription disc. <laughs> Now, this issue also uh, inside had a mail-away offer for a divine right, The Adventures of Max Faraday, a half-issue from Wildstorm. We're talking about the main cover story, Rolling Thunder, which is an interview with Dan Juergens and John Romita Jr., who are the new creative team behind the relaunch of Thor under Marvel's Heroes Return initiative. Now, what's interesting about this is Thor's title was canceled for the first time in 36 years for Heroes Reborn in 1996, so the Thunder God could be a part of Rob Liefeld's amped up Avengers team, but he didn't return with Captain America and Iron Man and the rest in 97 due to Marvel was still kind of trying to figure out what the plan was. We need a writer. We need to know what we're going to do with Thor. So we're not going to bring him back. Well, he came uh, back in Avengers. He just didn't have his own series. Right. Yeah. He was there. He just didn't have a solo title. Yeah. yeah. Let me just ask very quickly, brief synopsis from you. Heroes Reborn, were you buying it? Were you into it? I bought it, but I hated myself for it. <laughs> like, I, I think there was oh, there was one I thought was pretty good, and I can't actually... What, what, okay, so it was Fantastic Four, Avengers, Captain America, and Iron Man. I remember thinking the Fantastic Four was pretty good. I was a huge Fantastic Four fan for forever. It was one of my favorite comics 
still to this day. So I think you could kind of do no wrong. Like I even if like Invisible Woman was in her like weird bikini light dagger phase, I was still buying that comic. You just couldn't make me stop. They were not good comics, but I think what they did was they I think they were the new Coke of the 90s where it's big, it's publicized, people noticed it, even if you took the thing for granted beforehand, and then you say, oh, okay, I guess I'll try it, it's new, and then you realize, oh, this sucks a lot. <laughs> and then, when they bring back the original, it was a great opportunity for them to take all of these characters, a lot of whom had fallen down a terrible rabbit hole of just awful attempts to try to make them contemporarily relevant. No one cared about Thunderstrike. Everyone hated Teenage Iron Man. These were not comics that were doing well and i think this gave an opportunity for people to appreciate the, the way that these comics thor iron man guys are all these characters what made them work in their core and i think a lot when they came back from heroes reborn and you realize ah oh, rob liefeld might not be the best comics creator in the world and then you read Kurt Busiek's run on Iron Man when Heroes Return is amazing. Kurt Busiek's run on Avengers is one of my favorite runs of any comic ever. And even this version of Thor, where they were trying to sort of recapture the Dr. Blake era by having Thor take over the body of an EMT, was actually... I thought very effective and very good at reminding us. And I think even Ramita's artwork really evoked Simonson a lot. Yeah, I thought that was a pretty good run. It, it's something uh, on our show in the past, we've been kind of hard on John Ramita Jr. And then I started reading the store run because I was like, this might be the one where he fits for me. And I was yeah. like, yes, he does. But also Dan Jurgens was such a surprise, but apparently it feels like he had the right angle, the right yeah. understanding of that core, like you were saying, because he says here, quote, many fans think Thor is just a great big tool the Avengers use to beat on things. They don't feel for him as a character. When Thor hasn't worked in the past, it's because there's no connection to us, to humanity. So that that's just really interesting. But I love the new take, because like you said, with Dr. Donald Blake, initially it was just like, okay, he's got to slap his cane and then it turns into the hammer and now he's Thor. But in this version... Jurgens trapped him inside the body of this EMT, Jake Olson, and now he has to learn how to pretend to be a human being to really get the experience. It's not like he's, you know, in another dimension until Donald Blake calls him. And he says here, Jurgens elaborates, quote, he inherits the whole life with all the personal entanglements that come with it. If Thor is exclusive to Asgard, he loses some specialness because there he's just one of 55 gods. A variety of Earth and Asgard of old and new is the balance we're looking for for so that that i i don't know some people want all fantasy realm some mm -hmm. people want all you know on earth and a god among us what do you think i think that th one of the great things about a character like thor is that you can kind of do anything you you want with him and you can do a whole giant fantasy epic where he gets turned into a frog and it's awesome you can send him into space and have him meet beta ray bill and it's awesome and you can have him on earth and have that explore that contrast and it's awesome for me i think the key isn't so much specifically that Thor has to have a connection with humanity as in being a human for a while I think it's kind of literal a lot of the original Norse myths around Thor had a lot to do with teaching gods these powerful figures who had literal superpowers and so much control over the world in which we live teaching them a bit of humility so for me I think a lot of the best Thor stories whether they involve humanity or not are about taking this god down a smidge 
and reminding him that although he may technically be a god, he's not infallible. And I thought this was a good literalized way of doing that. So I thought yeah. this was a this was a good sweet spot. I felt and and Ramita's artwork, which I didn't think fit every single comic they ever put Ramita on, right? But I think here he understood how to make it epic. Like the first issue or two of that run, they brought a character back or a, or more of a monster, really, the Destroyer, and made that scary. I think maybe for the first time. And I, if I were to hazard a guess, I would suspect that it's that particular issue of Thor that inspired the way that Branagh used Destroyer in the first Thor movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I would imagine. So that's the thing. This is the type of story that does bring me in because of that like connection to the human. And what he says here, Jurgens is like talking about, he says, quote, Thor's Asgardian dialect has been a hurdle many readers have had a difficult time climbing. I don't want to make Thor inaccessible to kids who might be struggling with Shakespeare in school. Thor will have a bit of the grandeur in his speech that is important to him, but he will be very readable. And I think he accomplishes that because when I think of Thor, even like when the story is set on Earth, when he is like above every Buddy and like speaking in his lofty turns of phrase are like it's cute but at the same time i'm like i don't feel connected to you though like i i recognize your power and your grandeur but i don't i don't feel anything for you and so like when they can like bring it down a little bit and find him okay he's got to learn to speak like a human now like that's kind of clever to me he's got to get mortal speech patterns down <laughs> i feel like marvel eventually decided that that sort of haughty i'm better than you but i'm still a charming thing was more of a hercules thing than a thor yeah. thing We're better for that character all right why don't you take us into our next story here Bibbs? okay our next cover story nasty boys <laughs> is a last man standing style piece where the wizard staff pits the 10 quote dirtiest nastiest superheroes against each other in an imaginary bar brawl to see who would come out on top uh cassidy the ex-ira vampire from preacher is the first combatant uh but despite being a vampire healing etc he is taken out because he just likes booze too much and gets distracted then uh the fight kicks off with aquaman who is in his harpoon hand phase uh very ruthless and rugged in attempting to get out of the situation dc's fish guy falls victim to a cheap shot from the newest x-man marrow who they were desperately trying to make happen this mad mutant can create some pretty dangerous bone knives but falls victim to inexperience at the meaty paws of Marv from Sin City, who is described as one hunk of meat that just doesn't know when it's beat and will absolutely not stop until you are at pace, which is probably true. Unfortunately, Marv is just a human wrecking machine, not a tactician, so he gets taken out by a side to the chest from Electra. Electra, I know you're close to the side in the chest, but there are other moves. Uh, <laughs> Wizard recognizes that Matt Murdock's assassin ex girlfriend is a deadly fighter, but also she doesn't have the obsessiveness of a man brainwashed into being the ultimate vengeance-seeking machine, so Azrael sends her packing, and boy, is that a 90s thing to happen. Oh, yeah. Um, Unfortunately, the former Batman replacement is a bulletproof, so he meets his maker at the hands of the Punisher, who, while only human, has a death wish. Haha, <laughs> the movie Death Wish. Uh, which makes him more dangerous. Uh, Frank Castle is not the son of a god, and so uh, he gets defeated by Orion from the planet Apocalypse, son of Darkseid. But even though Orion could match Superman, he's delusional in thinking he's invincible, and this would be his undoing at the hands of the Incredible Hulk. But the only person the wizard thought could defeat the Hulk was Wolverine, who is kind of the guy who beats the Hulk. So Logan, he beat up a lot of the characters already on the list, and they decide he's basically invincible. What do you think about this outcome? Does Wolverine's popularity match his ability to destroy any opponent listed here? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something right now about this article. This article made me laugh so bad because on one hand, who would win in a fight? The classic comic book question. 
I like one stat that they included for every character they put in their top 10, which was how long they would last in a bar yes. brawl. And I think they said like they'd last two hours and 10 minutes. And I'm like, how long do you think a bar brawl lasts? <laughs> they, they, they've clearly never, never been in one. <laughs> no, like a bar brawl lasts like maybe a few minutes, maybe maybe five or ten if it gets really, really rowdy. Like if you've ever seen a Chuck Norris movie, you know a bar brawl, though exciting, people are trying to finish it. They're not trying to like, let's just let everyone take a breather, everyone have another beer, and then we'll start this bar brawl again in a few minutes. Well, yeah, it depends if Patrick Swayze's yeah. there. You know? Like maybe the one exception I can think of is is from the Christmas episode of Justice League Unlimited, where Hawkgirl took Green Lantern to her favorite pub, and they started bar ball just for fun. And I, the implication is that it went on all night. I'll let you go. But for the most part, Bruce Lee had a bit. He didn't like long fight scenes. That's why most of the longer Bruce Lee fight scenes, he's fighting a bunch of different people. Because Bruce Lee's argument was, in a fight, no one's trying to pad it out. You're trying to end the fight because that guy's trying to hurt you. So fights should end pretty quickly because once you land one good blow, it's kind of over. Like, right. you only can take so much more. So I love the the fight thing. I think Wolverine is absolutely a guy who would probably come out, to, out on top in most bar brawls. He's also, of all these characters, maybe the most likely besides Cassidy to be in one. Like, to actually, like, have been in a bar and then a brawl starts and he's like, all right, it's Tuesday. Let's do this. <laughs> In your mind, Michael, like, is Wolverine just the toughest because he can heal from everything? Or do you feel like it's his fighting ability? Like, what would, in your mind, say, yeah, he's the one who wins this? I just think he's relentless. Remember X2 when he's, like, in the mansion and he's just ripping people to shreds? That's kind of how I see Wolverine, like, when he's in full bore, like, just insanity mode. The berserker rage where you just, you can't stop him. Yeah. That's right. kind of what I think. Wolverine is typically considered invincible. And I remember there was one issue of Wolverine. And it's ra- it's, it was like around the time when I was like, you know what? I think I'm done with Wolverine comics for a while where he healed from like a drop of blood. And I was like, <laughs> no, you can't do that. That's wrong. That, that kind of, I know we're all accepting that this is all fantastical, but come the hell on. For me, everyone's always like, well, how can you kill Wolverine? It's actually very easy to kill Wolverine. He still needs to breathe. Mm. So all you got to do is get the Hulk to like, shove his head under like the tap at the bar and just pour it on and just hold him there until he passes out and then you're good so they never really do that no one's ever like like thrown wolverine in to like in a river and like yeah. dropped him down into a river or something like that that would probably do the job hydro man is his greatest art honestly I, if, if they ever that. brought back acts of vengeance and that was what they did was sent hydro man after wolverine i'd be like <laughs> yeah that would do it actually that'd be pretty good what's he gonna do (laughs) what's he gonna do i'm sure he'll find a way like oh there's an electrical outlet if i can just put my thing in there yeah he'll do he'll become yeah you can find a way out of it but that's like the one big challenge you would ever really have and also he'd sink to the bottom anyways he's covered in metal so there you Um. go Hey geeks, it's time to take a break to tell you about our sponsor for this episode, Manscaped. Smooth sack summer is drawn to a close, and that means now is the time to keep your balls cool while still looking hot with Manscaped. Just go to manscaped.com for 20% off plus free shipping with our code WIZARDS20. You know, there's a lot of ball-related heroes in comics. Speedball, that bizarre Marvel Comics villain 8-Ball, the Fast Ball special from X-Men Comics, but the most important balls are yours, and that's why you 
you need the Power of the Manscaped Performance Package 4.0. It has everything you need to prepare that summer bod. Manscaped has built the ultimate grooming bundle that includes their Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer, which features a cutting-edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents thanks to their advanced skin-safe technology. The Lawnmower 4.0 has a 7,000 RPM motor, a new multifunction on-off switch, it can engage a travel lock, and gives you the ability to turn the 4,000 Kelvin LED spotlight on and off when needed for a more precise shave. Gotta see what's going on down there, after all. It's also waterproof with a blade that can shear through even the strongest pubes with the precision of Wolverine's adamantium claws. But after you're looking good, you want to feel good by using the Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant to stay cool in the heat. Its soothing aloe vera formula is the best in the business for below-the-waist freshness, and this clear-drying formula will keep you looking good while smelling good. The Manscaped Performance Package 4.0 also includes two free gifts, the Manscaped Boxers and the Shed Travel Bag. While it's still warm enough to rock those sandals, you'll also want to use the Shears 2.0, a luxury nail grooming kit to keep your nails looking great. This kit includes stainless steel nail cutters, tweezers, and grooming scissors. With the Performance Package 4.0, your balls will be ready to impress, but make sure you cover the rest with the Shears 2.0. So what are you waiting for, geeks? Get 20% off plus free shipping with the code WIZARDS20 at manscaped.com. That's 20% off plus free shipping with the code WIZARDS20 at manscaped.com. Have a ball being a grooming hero this summer and looking your best with Manscaped. Hey geeks, looking for something different than another reality-shattering crossover from the big two? Do you want a self-contained sci-fi thriller with a dash of super-powered excitement? Then Above the Grave, a graphic novel by Mitchell Hall and Andrew DeSilva, should be at the top of your reading pile, and it's available to download now on Amazon.com. Here's what Above the Grave is all about. In Mako, the supervillain prison of the world, located underground in the Nambian Desert, no one finds redemption. Or can they? Follow the adventures of new warden Rick Mastertine as he deals with a prison break by rogues such as shape-shifting Mr. Twister, luck-manipulating Russian Roulette, sentient lethal banyan tree Divine, and brilliant Chimera Crocitus. Rick must also discover the true secret of Mako and come to terms with his own personal history while dealing with an action-packed supervillain prison break. Above the Grave is a 136-page graphic novel that's more than just another superhero smackdown book. I read it, and frankly, I couldn't put it down, the reveal of what's going on in Mako and the secret plans of the superpowered inmates are perfectly paced by Hall for maximum intrigue. The black and white art by De Silva is cinematic in scope and perfectly complemented by sharp dialogue from engaging characters. And it really reminded me of the 80s black and white adventure comics, just those indie books from First Comics and Eclipse Comics. It's a story with a more sophisticated edge, but it puts entertainment first. So head on over to Amazon.com to grab your copy of Above the Grave today. You can check our show notes for a link, but strap in for a unique and thrilling adventure in graphic storytelling with Above the Grave. Now back to the show. Well, I, I'm excited about this next piece here because I have two big film guys. I got a film professor. I got a film critic here talking to me. So we are going to get into it. The Wizard Q&A with Kevin Smith is the first major wizard coverage of the indie filmmaker and screenwriter behind Clerks, Mall Rats, and Chasing Amy, who is just about to make the jump to mainstream comics. Says Smith of the opportunities that have come his way over just five years, quote, I've lived the ultimate fanboy's life. To cross between both worlds and work in the media 
medium that you love, then to be working in a new medium that you love too, love even more to some degree, is pretty damn thrilling. So Wizard starts out by asking Smith how he feels about having his script for Superman Lives, that infamous script, thrown out by director Tim Burton. To which he responds, matter of factly, what are you going to do? Fire the guy who made you a billion dollars or fire the guy who made Clerks? <laughs> As for other comics he would like to adapt to film, Smith mentions that Warner Brothers approached him about writing a Green Lantern script, but that he would be much more inclined towards adapting DC's The Question or Green Arrow. Indie books like Grendel or Mage by Matt Wagner mentioned as favorites that he would like to tackle. Quote, I'm more interested in smaller, more personal, somewhat more realistic films. We have a professional film critic with us, as I said. So I do want to ask, you know, we, we don't have time to get into the full filmography and the full discussion, but in general, Kevin Smith's filmography, how do you feel about it? Kevin Smith is a filmmaker who's really interesting to me because like, he started out as a pretty good filmmaker and then he kind of got worse a little bit as, as time went on, like in terms of like Clerks, the original Clerks is actually filmed with a lot of actually it's a lot of style i actually think it's actually for a low budget black and white movie shot at a liquor store for the cost of a honda civic like it's actually like a good looking movie and it's got great characters and parts of it have aged poorly but it really did speak to a certain malaise i've talked about clerks a lot with my co-host and i feel like clerks was actually a big inflection point for fandom in general because the, the point of the scene in the movie where they talk about did independent contractors die in the death star that's supposed to be sad. Like, that's supposed to be like, oh, this is what they have instead of culture. This is where they're looking for deeper meaning and something that relates to their lives is only pop culture. And then that became a job. Like, we're kind of just doing that now. Yeah. And like, that's that's actually, like, where we are. And there's some good that has come of that. But it's also weird how he kind of predicted that that would happen and help popularize it. But I think he's made some very good movies. I think he's made some very bad movies. You can say that about almost any filmmaker. But what I like about Kevin Smith is that he, it always feels like, with the exception of maybe, like, Cop Out, it always felt like he made what he wanted to make. He made something that spoke to him or that he had something to say with. And I respect that. Like I interviewed him for Yoga Hosers at Sundance once and he was like, at the end of the day, whether people like this movie or not, I got to make a movie with my daughter as the lead. And that's mm -hmm. something I will cherish when I'm on my deathbed. So I think he's in this interestingly Zen state as a filmmaker where he's literally doing what we tell filmmakers to do. Make movies for yourself, make personal things. Yeah. If we don't respond to them, fine but i kind of respect that i i actually like it i thought clerks 3 was very sweet i cried so yeah i i mostly respect him i don't like everything he's ever done though michael how many of your students come to you now and say oh kevin smith that's the kind of filmmaker i want to be uh not many yeah, yeah <laughs> and he's I, from a, a certain generation yeah and, and i teach in new jersey so truthfully I, you know i i think like chasing amy is his best film by far far and away his best film i really do like dogma and clerks and mall rats I think Red State is very underrated also. Everything else is sort of, you know, a little all over the place. I do think that like around the time of Yoga Hosers when he's when he had his heart attack and he's kind of changed his perspective. Like Bib said, like less about making films for the masses is more like making films for him than like it or don't like it, doesn't really care. And he's does his own thing. And what's funny about Kevin Smith though, not only as a filmmaker, but like as just like a fandom person. He's figured out a way to tap into the masses by just talking about nerdy stuff and yeah. people just hang on his word like Fat Man on Batman or Fat Man Beyond, whatever they call it now. And like he does these, he buys movie theaters and does special events and like and just flies to New Jersey to like 
talk about a movie for three hours. Well, that's one of the things that's cool about it's actually in this interview. I think you can see one of the things that he did. You talk to a lot of filmmakers, a lot of writers, a lot of actors, comic, whatever. Like they're very hesitant to have very strong opinions about the art because, well, what if that gets in the way of a job I could do at some point? Kevin Smith was always very comfortable saying, here's what I love about this. Here's what I think doesn't work. He always spoke from the place of being a fan. And I think it's one of the reasons why he got to write a Superman script, which honestly was not the worst Superman script I've ever read. Um, I think there's definitely the suit interference heard it, but I actually think he had a pretty good beat on some of the characters. But I think you look at this and you see him like, and he's shooting a shot here. He's literally saying in this, like, I'm telling you, man, if I had an opportunity to write Green Arrow, I think I could make that a hit book. He was not wrong. Yeah. Like he was, okay. he's just out there saying what he really feels, what he thinks. There's like a little side thing talking about all the different, like, what would you do with this movie if you wrote it? He's just saying it and he's not really reaping any negative consequences for it. And I kind of no, wish he's, he, more I like, people would it, be it, more that front, uh, upfront about what they think about art. Yeah. Cause in particular, he's on the side of the filmmakers. Even in the case of this, he said, they ask him, why do you think the Marvel films have sucked and they haven't been able to do what DC has done? And he says, quote, Marvel just hasn't been able to pull together. It's just made some poor choices. Giving out the licensed Fantastic Four, one of Marvel's most popular titles to a company yeah. who is making it for a million bucks. What are you high? Do you need money that badly that you'd let that movie out there? You can't blame the filmmakers. They had a million bucks. So I love that. That's like the best defense of the Corbin oh, Fantastic dude, Four. Dude, I'll say that I still think that's the best Fantastic Four movie we've ever had. No, that's not saying a lot. But, and while there are things I like about all the other Fantastic Four movies, I think the Corman one at the very least had the tone. It didn't have the money. It didn't have the skill. Some of the actors are better than others. I think Dr. Doom actually looks okay. But it understood what the tone should be and neither of the Tim Story movies better with Silver Surfer, but neither Tim Story movies did. And Fantastic absolutely no. had no idea. <laughs> and I, I, so I, when it all comes down to it, the Fantastic Four movie I've seen the most is the Corman one because yeah, it's, it's kitschy, but it's also fun. And it really does feel like the people who made it were evoking the spirit of the old Lee and Kirby days. Yeah, they loved what they were doing. They were trying their best 100%. Now, the last thing here about Kevin Smith, you talked about him coming from the fan perspective. And I love this because this is something I always wanted to know. They ask him about how he ended up owning his own comic book store. Yeah. And he says, quote, it was originally a store called Comicology. One day, the guy who ran the place came into the office and said, I'm moving to Taiwan. I was like, what the hell are we going to do? Where are we going to get our comics? But he said... Well, I was thinking maybe you'd want to take the store over. So I bought it. I turned it into the secret stash. It keeps your finger on the pulse too. You really learn what's not moving, what people are interested in, what they're not interested in. So I I just love that idea. It's kind of like the comic book men origins. They never get into that on the show. Like, how did we actually get this uh, comic book store to shoot? I'll be there on Friday, actually. Funny enough. Oh, really? Yeah, I'm going there Friday. Yeah. Oh, I, uh, they, I, I've been there several times, but I'm going there Friday because we're me and my buddy Peter going to see a, sh- a show in Red Bank right around the corner from them. Excellent. Oh, cool. Did anyone ever go to the secret stash when it, it moved locations at least? Yeah, I, I've been to the LA. original location. I've never been to the new location. So I'm going to the new one now because I've never yeah. been there. I've always been the, the uh, But thing. in L.A., they opened up Jan and Bob's secret stash at the back of a Rhino Records. And then that closed down and then it moved into Westwood and had its own dedicated storefront, which is really nice. I I might be reversing those, but I think that's the order. And then it ended up in the back of one of the last, there's only like a couple left, but it was one of the last DVD sale and rental stores in LA, Laser Blazer. And it had a whole section in the back. It was pretty good. 
I used to used to work at Laser Blazers, so that oh. was kind of fun. It was a little after my time that I think he opened up that bit, or maybe it was maybe it was towards the end. I don't remember. Yeah. Anyways, around the, it was around that era. It's been interesting. That's awesome. All right, so Michael, since you work in the world of higher education, I think you have to take this next story for us okay. here. Wizard U highlights all of the American colleges and universities that have comic book related classes with course names like English. 1730 Comics as Literature at the University of Florida, American Culture 206 Comic Books and American Culture, or what has to be the best college course ever, English 420, The Cyborg in Popular Media. Interesting. (laughs) As for schools that aspiring artists could enroll in, the Joe Kubrick School for Graphic Art and Design, the Savannah College of Art and Design, which is still a very, very revered uh, graduate program for artists and designers, stuff like that, believe it or not, as a suitable institution to learn your comic art fundamentals. So this seven-page directory ultimately functions as a way for Wizard to answer the mountain of letters that they must have been receiving, basically asking, how do I get into comics? How do I become a comic book artist? And being able to tell these inquiring readers, go buy issue 80 of Wizard for all the answers to that question. I got to imagine they're like stockpiling. They ordered extra issue 80s in the warehouse because they're just like, ah, send them issue 80. We're not responding, you know? <laughs> that's funny. But that's cool. I, I, it's kind of neat that they did that. And, I, and there were so many more. I mean, we just highlighted a couple, but it's kind of interesting to see. And I know like Michael Uslan, you know, the executive producer of the Batman films, like he is actually one of the people who pioneered that and started yeah. teaching comics at universities. And but, stuff. I mean, there's classes at NYU. We teach them at our college. Um, we actually do like a meet the pros event every semester where we bring in comic book artists and writers talk about comics and stuff like that it's it's become so mainstream by this point that like they're you know especially now with like things like kickstarter where people are like can make their own comic and promote it on their own and stuff like that so it's it's there it's this is the beginning i think it's pretty cool All right. Well, closing out our segment here, I think it's worth mentioning there's a very visual part of this issue. We're going to post it to social media because we can't really describe every element of it. But in celebration of the 60th anniversary of Superman, Wizard put together our family album, which is a mock-up of a photo album containing all the newspaper clippings from the big moments in Clark Kent's life, painted by comic book artist Gene Ha and written by Wizard freelancer Craig Shutt. And it's really well done. But like I said, you you got to see it. But I wanted to just mentioned that the clippings under the headline right before the story starts it'll tell you okay this is the city that the story took is taking place and we're reporting about and so they have like schuster city ohio burn nevada weisinger pennsylvania so you know just real in jokes you know for all of us there's even a a story about uh, clark kent although unidentified in the story but saving the day on a college campus at its near wade hall so you just love like (laughs) you know it's so funny they're reaching there a little bit yeah (laughs) but you know the thing is we might have some more superman news just high in the sky then we're going to discuss that in our next segment which is heroes in motion
The cape worn by Christopher Reeve in the 1978 Superman film sold for $17,000 at Sotheby's auction on December 20th, 1997. There was no way it would go for that low today. No, uh, it easily. was the, easily like hundreds of thousands at least. Uh, yeah. It was sold to a fan with a lot of disposable income who saw a report on TV about the auction and ran over to put his winning bid the same day. He also walked away with William Shatner's Starfleet uniform from Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan for another 11000 There's also no way it would go for Even with inflation, there's no way it would go for that cheap today. Is there a piece of comic book movie memorabilia you'd want to own if you had $30,000 burning a hole in your pocket like this guy? It's very important that you put burning a hole in your pocket because I think we all would be like, that's going to student loans. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We have bills to pay with that $30,000. I'm just trying to imagine like same day you're like, oh, oh, I can go buy this. If I I had like a gift certificate to Sotheby's like and it was for (laughs) $30,000, I'm like, oh, my God, what do I do? And that's actually a really fun question because everyone everyone loves movie memorabilia. Um, But what what do you think? What's the one that like either, you know, you'd put on your mantle or you would want to show off to everybody? There's a ton. I mean, obviously, like almost almost any superhero movie I like, I'm sure is at least one prop. I would like a prop that is totally awesome but from a movie people don't like or don't recognize and they'd be like wait why do i know that and weirdly enough the first thing that came to mind would be the stop motion or i think it was go motion puppet for the dark lord of the universe at the end of howard the duck wow (laughs) because say what you will about howard the duck seriously go right on ahead that monster at the end that like giant crustacean thing terrifying that, that thing looks cool (laughs) <laughs> that thing looked thing look really cool. The visual effects are excellent. It's an amazing design. I would love for that thing to be on my mantle. What a, I'm sure it's pretty big, but like it'd be amazing. And again, who has that? Well, Michael, do you want Damon Wayans Blank Man costume? <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, I would like the Blank Cycle. Theaters. Oh my God. Okay. That's a oh. few superhero movies that were in the 90s. You know yeah. what I would love, honestly? the door to the bat suit in batman 89 and i would change the door of my office to that that's an awesome (laughs) choice i love that (laughs) that's a delight oh my god oh man i mean i i was trying to rack my brain i was just like yeah what what movie do i revere like this there's actually it came up recently in an auction and that's why it was on my mind but i i was just writing an article for the retro network you know our home here and uh i was writing about the original marvel cinematic universe all the you know 80s 90s 70s stuff and that Matt Salinger Captain America movie for mm-hmm. as many bad choices as they made in it. I always felt the costume and that shield were so comics accurate. It's kind of like you look at, you know, the Corman Fantastic Four. You're saying they had the right spirit there. Albert Pune mm-hmm. did his best, at least putting the money into that to have that shield. I, the I shield's love- good. The shield yeah. is good. That is probably the most comic book accurate costume I've ever seen. Not unlike the clear shield for the other versions. Of oh, it. I hated that. I, Those hated were, it. I- I did an article once where I reviewed every single Marvel movie, including those TV movies. And it turns out there were a couple I missed and I'm embarrassed. But those TV movie Captain America movies are abysmal. (laughs) They're just so boring. They're just, especially that first one. Nothing happens in the majority of that movie. It's just, seriously, Captain America driving around in a van look bored. Like it's incredible. Doing some painting. Yeah. (laughs) It's like like if you asked Jim Jarmusch to do a Captain America movie, but with none of the wit. But like, 
the the one thing I will say about I, will, I actually like that Albert Pugh and Captain America movie more than most people. Yeah, uh, and there's there's stuff I really like in it. I, it infuriates me that they decided to only show the Red Skull as the Red Skull in the first scene because I actually think the makeup looks really cool. It, yeah, they did a good job looked, with that too. It was very effective. It looked like kind of like it, it wasn't like just his face was red. It looked like it had just like open wounds over it, like it can't mm-hmm. heal. Like it was really creepy. And I love the shield. My one complaint about the costume is that instead of just covering up Captain America's ears or cutting holes for Matt Salinger's ears, he had rubber ears. Never made sense. It's so <laughs> damn funny and very weird. And that'd be a cool thing to have. Like, you know, you're like Cap- you're like uh, Batman has that like Robin costume in a glass yes. tube. I would just love to have Matt Salinger's Captain America costume in a glass tube. Just, there. <laughs> just the rubber ear in a glass tube. <laughs> Uh, yes i'm sure that hasn't dissolved into nothingness by now but still all right well speaking of icons so we teased this last episode but woman of the hour is a special report which provides a follow-up to a story regarding a wonder woman tv pilot that was supposed to be produced in 1998 sometime they were holding an open cattle call but these casting events were taking place at the warner brothers studio stores nationwide so wizard tipped off gina logan who is the grand prize winner of the 1997 halloween costume contest which we've covered it's on our youtube channel you can hear our thoughts on all that cosplay uh but they said hey they're doing it at the Warner Brothers Studio Store in New York. Why don't you head down there? And so they actually got their photographer, Paul Schiraldi, price guide editor, Lars Pearson, to go down with her. And so she wrote a diary of her experience. And so she was the only one in line in costume. And she immediately, because of that, found herself in front of cameras. Access Hollywood was interviewing her. The View was interviewing her. Entertainment Weekly is trying to hit her up with questions. And it's funny. She says her community theater experience prepared her for the audition so she wasn't nervous there but the struggle was the freezing cold outside and a passing drunk who was complimenting her legs although she said she liked the attention but she walks away with an arch enemy from this experience which I thought was so funny it's the only negative thing she says really in the whole thing is she says they were asked to step back outside after they filled out their paperwork it wasn't their turn to go in yet and so she says uh, as she walked out she heard put your coat on honey says one of the oh so helpful and cheery WB employees, I have to fight the urge to slap her as we all line up outside the front entrance of the store. But ultimately, since Adrian Palicki gets the job in the 2011 Wonder Woman pilot that does get produced, we can guess this was Gina's last 15 minutes of fame, but it's a very fun story. I actually, I'll say I reached out to Lars Pearson to get his memories of this day, and he was just like flabbergasted. What's going on with my brain? He's like, I can't remember. I sent him the scan. He looked at the issue. He's like, why would they even send me to this? Why am I named? in this article it makes i'm the price guide manager <laughs> like so it's just hilarious to me he didn't remember anything about it so that's funny but any thoughts have you have you guys ever heard about this 1998 wonder woman no i mean it sounds like honestly it sounds like a stunt it sounds like they were just trying to like call Get attention to, to it like, I mean, they might yeah. have been seriously <laughs> considering it wonder woman was a huge hit in the 1970s which is weird because that was actually the third attempt to make a wonder woman tv show there was an attempt to do like a funny sitcom version a la yep. the adam west like batman, batman in the 60s yeah. there was like a they did a they did a test pilot for that 
was really bad. The failed Batgirl pilot was better. Um, yeah, and then there's the Kathy Lee Crosby that predated, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. what, uh, which was more was... based on that version of Wonder Woman, where it's like she was more of like a super spy, and it's yeah. not very good. And then the, the Adrian Palicki one is all over the place. Uh, there's wild, stuff I like and there's wild, stuff about it that's yeah. terrible. But yeah, I'm sure they they probably tried a, a bunch of times. You know, again, this was before we had the entertainment 24 hour news cycle that we have now where you have to fill space on the internet with something, rumors, any sort of casting bulletins yeah. that comes out. And so, yeah, maybe they they were seriously considering it. It wouldn't surprise me, but I don't recall anything. Yeah, well, why don't you take us into our next story here about a movie that does eventually get made? Yeah, some of the, some of these stories are actually like, oh my God, wow, right on the cusp. Uh, moving over to Marvel Movie News, Wizard reports that a live-action X-Men film could be arriving in theaters as early as Christmas 1999. It's pointed out that this would have the basis of a great marketing pun if Xmas spelling were used. <laughs> what? Uh, director Brian Singer. Anyway, he reveals that it's not exactly the origin of the X-Men, but it takes place in the beginning. It deals with a lot of the original characters, then comic book series. Uh, at the time, he was working on a script with screenwriter Ed Solomon that was supposed to include Professor X, Wolverine, Storm, Jean Grey, Cyclops, Rogue, and Beast, which uh, I believe the, the story goes that Beast was a little like too expensive to put together, so they just kind of combined his role with Jean Grey, and that's why he became like a doctor in the oh, finished version. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. But uh, the director says he really likes the Beast, saying Beast is great. Beast is Spock. You have to understand that I'm a Spock freak. You have to understand Spock is the greatest character. He does reveal that as part of his preparation, he watched every episode of the animated series to help create an all-audiences version of the story. As for the potential of the film to be a hit, he says, I think it has all the elements to make it fantastically mainstream, universal movie. They've tried to get this project off the ground for 10 years. Boy, do I remember all those rumors. Uh, They've had many opportunities to make this movie the wrong way. I wouldn't be approaching it if A, I didn't think we could do it the right way and B, I didn't have a really, really deep passion for it. Was your anticipation for the X-Men movie matched by what we eventually got on screen in 2000? And I remember the build-up to this movie being very fraught because... Blade had just come out and that was good and it kind of gave people the confidence to really push ahead with more Marvel's movies but a lot of the early stuff we were seeing from the X-Men movie was these new costumes that were not comics accurate and there was a huge schism I think in the fan community between people who were like look would those costumes actually look good on screen? Like the orange and gold, really? And the answer is yes. X-Men First Class made them look awesome. You totally could have done that. But if you didn't think it would work, you you did this black leather thing and it was fine. Everyone accepted it. It was not the point. They rode the the Matrix wave with that costume. And it was also the late 90s. Leather was in. So Mm -hmm. it, it made sense. It was not the end of the world. I remember at the time thinking to myself, as long as they get Wolverine right, I'm happy. And to their credit, Hugh Jackman was a great, great out of the blue choice. Like nobody knew who he was. It was totally a star making turn. He nailed it. It was a younger, more kind of James Dean version of the character. More like, you know, one of the ideas they originally had for the character before Claremont decided to make him older. But I think they did a good job. I think that first X-Men movie is not a very good movie in a lot of ways, but it proved it could be done. It proved the characters could translate to the screen, audiences would accept the premise, and it laid the groundwork for better and more interesting superhero movies in the future. So I think it's an important film, but I don't think it's a particularly great film. And I think at the time, our standards were pretty dang low for comic book movies, especially Marvel movies. And we were all just relieved it didn't suck. 
Yeah, well, and I can't overstate how far Patrick Stewart as Professor X went oh, in yeah. legitimizing it and just making it like, you know what? Mm-hmm. They got that right. And like, Ian McKellen, who was a hugely respected actor. He was coming oh, yeah. off Gods and Monsters and his version of Richard III, I think is the best version ever filmed. The Shadow, 1994, one of my favorite films. Oh, yes. Right? <laughs> Richard III and The Shadow. <laughs> hey, I like The Shadow. That's a fun double feature. I Thank think. you. Yes. Yeah. So I have a fun story about this movie, though. At the time, I was in my senior year of high school, I guess, and was doing this like volunteer thing through Universal Studios, right? And at the end of the year, they'd flown us down to Universal Studios Florida, and we had to like tour the facilities and everything, and they took us through the Islands of Adventure and the X-Men wing and all that kind of stuff. And then we had to go and sit and watch the movie in a private screening before it was even released to the, to the theaters for our feedback on the movie. And I was like, I'm going to see X-Men before anybody else. And I was so amped by that. And yes, there are things about this movie that I absolutely love. There are things that I absolutely do not like. I think X2 is a far better film than the first one. But coming out of the gate and trying to like legitimize movies again after the Batman Forever and Batman and Robin debacles, this was a good first step in the right direction. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I want to getting into we talked a little bit about the casting. I just want to mention at this time, they're saying, you know, Patrick Stewart had already been contacted about taking the role of Charles Xavier. Angela Bassett had expressed interest in playing Storm, which would have been way better in Halle Berry. Gary Sinise was rumored to be in contention for Wolverine, but the director explains, quote, I'm actually more interested in the character and looking for a guy who is that character, who is Wolverine, which again, I'm not, I've said I'm not a huge fan of Jackman overall as the character but i think he's so likable you can't not like what he's doing but then wizard of course has to hop on america online again and do their whole polling like who do you guys think it should be and they'd been pushing for years robert de niro so of course their readers are saying robert i mean and and glenn danzig made it made it made it onto that list as well wizard was weirdly influential about how people wanted these things cast what i think is interesting about all these choices that wizard had was they're all old guys yeah like gary sinise wasn't like old but he was like middle-aged around that something like that like the the idea was that wolverine like he was in the comics was an older man and he's been around and he's kind of weathered and i actually think that like de niro circa cape fear that's an interesting choice yeah i think sinise actually probably would have been pretty good who put robin williams on oh my god he gets people put him for everything he was he was literally every movie his height he's shorter And he could do all the different voices. It would be fascinating to see a Robin Williams take on Wolverine. I just don't think anybody would accept. I think think Robin Williams would have been a good beast. Yeah. I think he would have been a very good beast. I can't imagine him as Wolverine. Even when he's playing darker characters, I I can't see him. You can't take him seriously. I I can take him seriously. I just can't picture him doing a berserker rage. It just doesn't feel right to me. So, yeah, I can't. All right, Michael, this next story is for you. Give it to us. All right. Okay. So, a new Batman cartoon in 1998 provides the first look at Terry McGinnis's character design for Batman Beyond. Though at this time the show had been promoted as Batman Tomorrow, Bruce Tim explains it's basically Batman the Next Generation. There's a teenager who becomes Batman and Bruce helps him out. Tim reveals that it was 
inevitable that Warner Brothers would want another Batman animated series. So he, Paul Dini, and Alan Burnett decided to take the reins to maintain the integrity of the animated Batman universe. It seemed so commercial and such a knockoff, but the more we started talking about it, the more excited we got about this show. Then I did a drawing of a new Batman and went, that's cool. As for the inevitable fan backlash, Tim is prepared saying hardline traditional purists were going to just totally rebel against the idea. But I hope they're watching because we're going to do something really cool. And I honestly think there's never been much backlash on Batman Beyond. Who doesn't it's, like Batman Beyond? I think yeah. there was skepticism, but I don't remember anyone hating it. Ever. Except no, there is polarizing at the epilogue episode of Justice League Unlimited, yes, where they say that he's a clone of Bruce Wayne. Oh, I, I never thought heard that. that. <laughs> I, I remember that being like he was like his like kind of son, but in a lab or something like that. But regardless, yeah. I thought that was way I thought that was ridiculous. That was just trying way too hard. That was the, um, the polarizing thing. Yeah, but the actual series itself, not, the comic book still runs to this day. And it's still yeah. a very popular DC comic. And that it's runs the movie constantly. they keep teasing over and over again. Yeah, they've been, they've, been pitching that for, movie, they've been pitching that since before Batman Begins came out. And yeah. it's funny, though, because actually I've written about this, the story of how Batman Beyond came together. And if memory serves, and the, the, you know, it's hard to say exactly. I believe that, this, that the network pitched this to them. They did not want to do it. And they said, we want to do a teenage Batman show and they're like oh god no that's death no 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 <laughs> and then they kind of just flipped it around because the other thing that they kept pushing them was because the, the big money for a lot of these shows was in toys doesn't matter how good or how popular even what your ratings are for a lot of these shows if you're not selling toys you get canceled this is what happened to that amazing Green Lantern show it wasn't moving toys so they canceled it even though the ratings were good I am still mad about that but uh, they also wanted futuristic Batman toys. And they're like, well, we can kill two birds with one stone if instead of doing young Bruce Wayne, we have an old Bruce Wayne have a protege and it's in the future, like kind of a Blade Runner kind of thing. And you know what? They took the thing that the studio wanted and they gave them what the studio actually wanted. I don't want the crappy thing you came up with, but I'm going to take the thing you thought was cool and I'm going to find a way to make that work. And that is a great story about how to take a very bad studio note and two of them actually, and turn it into gold because Batman Beyond is quite good. Yeah. Yeah. It's that Batmobile is still amazing. Oh, <laughs> so yeah. Cool. It's so Everything cool. about it. Love it. Well, close this out here, Bibbs. Okay, we finally arrived at our final cover story as Wizard gives the spotlight to an outrageously crass new animated series on Comedy Central. South Park? <laughs> Wizard describes the show as making, quote, Beavis and Butthead look like Tom and Jerry, which actually is pretty accurate. Uh, the phenomenon is mentioned to have gone beyond TV screens as songs from South Park are played on radio stations all over the country. South Park media is upon us. Co-creator Matt Stone explains the show's stilted signature animation style. South Park is done with stop-motion construction paper. The style wasn't born out of any conscious effort to have advantages. It was born out of laziness. As for the show's runaway success, Stone pontificates, I think it really shows that we're not following any of the rules and that we become successful because people out there are hungry for something different and this is one of those like articles you read in an old magazine where you're just like wow it really does feel like this is the hot new fad and yeah. we're 
still making those. It's amazing. It's still it's, around. Yeah. How can how, South Park has had a very strange cultural footprint. Some good, some very bad, actually. And it's really bizarre to see just this very, very naive story just about like, yeah, it's just this cute show. We have no idea what a juggernaut it's going to be. And, you know, it's full of like kind of fun information. The, the question posed is, you know, how did South Park mania manifest itself in your town? People watch the show and talked about it. Seeing people wearing t-shirts. That's where yeah. it came from. I was like, like Cartman was a t-shirt. You're just like, it, it, it didn't really change our lives at the time. I think the way that South Park manifested over time, and I started to notice this by about the mid 2000s, was the South Park moral ethos. There was a lot of both sides, critiques of liberals, critiques of the right wing. But the overall message of most South Park episodes was the real problem is caring about things too much. Everything was always stirring people up into a panic. And I think what I started noticing was that a lot of younger people started thinking, well, that's wisdom. And the real thing we should do is just not care and not concern ourselves with things. It's like that episode with Al Gore, Man Bear Pig. And (laughs) I think ultimately, I think that actually hurt a lot of political discourse amongst a certain generation. I don't want to give it too much credit for it. I think there was a lot of disillusionment going on at the time. I just think South Park was a show that really allowed people to disregard people who were trying to have a serious conversation about things that were going wrong in the country and the world. So for me, South Park mania initially, Oh, it's this kind of offensive thing. And the movie is funny. If you know, if not every joke works, I think the mania was kind of hurtful in a lot of ways. Uh, and so I look back on this period as kind of bittersweetly where it's like, oh, was this fun show that really pushed the boundaries of what you could do on television? And we were all kind of appreciating that. And then it got weirdly insidious. And in terms of like, it actually had a major cultural impact beyond the prevalence of merch. I will just say in this moment in time, yeah, it was just my friends in the high school parking lot doing, you know, Cartman impressions nonstop. It used to be Beavis and Butthead. Now it was South Park. And then like, they're talking about it was playing on the radio all the time, like Kevin and Bean on K-Rock in our area. Like they were playing like at Christmas, they would have Matt Stone and Trey Parker on and they would do Oh Holy Night with the South Park characters, you know, shocking each other with a cattle prod. Like my friends played that continuously. It was just like, I never watch the show i'm just like i don't need this <laughs> show but my friends were obsessed with it and so like every once in a while i catch her i'm like nope still don't need it don't need it at all but you know speaking of the hype behind south park we go two guys who were always chasing the hype and that is why we have to rev up jim and todd's hype machine Wizard had recently replaced their last page feature of the magazine, as we discussed at the top. They were used to talk to comic book pros, do a little Q&A. Now they had their time travel report on comic book history. And this issue was celebrating the 10 years since Todd McFarlane revitalized the look of Marvel's flagship character when he became the regular artist on The Amazing Spider-Man in 1988. Says Todd, quote, It forced me to think through how I could add my little fingerprint to the character. With the spaghetti webbing, the funky poses, making the eyes bigger. The only way to set yourself apart to garner some attention to, to your art as a young person is to take ideas and turn them sideways a little bit. People either say it's the kookiest thing they ever saw or it's the coolest thing they ever saw. Luckily for me, with most of the changes I made, the audience liked the same things I did. I love 
the phrases and just like the vocabulary that Todd McFarlane works into his conversations, calling it the kookiest. You know, there's nobody said kooky since 1956 and he's doing it, you know? <laughs> kooky um but anyway uh just in general like because there's a letter in the magic words section the bunny award went to somebody saying will todd mcfarland ever draw spider-man again which is the the question that just chased him his whole career would you guys have cared did you need him to go backwards to spider-man i mean if he did an issue if he did a cover for wizard i definitely would have bought that cover yeah, that, that's all it had you know, to be, right? Yeah. Basically, if he if he did an illustration or if he like if they got him to do like a poster for the movie or something like that, that would have been cool. Obviously, it's okay for people to be fans of someone's earlier work. I appreciate that it can be frustrating that you just want to move on, especially when clearly it wasn't a pleasant experience that led to him leaving Marvel altogether. But you know, it's it is worth remembering that Todd McFarlane's take on Spider-Man, just visually, was really kind of revolutionary and and in the good way not in the like we're gonna make dr fate a guy with a face tattoo kind of way where there it's like (laughs) oh 90s no don't do that don't do that 90s yeah but Um, it was it was just mind expanding like this is possible he took the original concept he took the original costume and just tweaked it a little just made the eyes bigger and then he just thought to himself what if he looked when he like was moving around a bit more like a spider and like his arms and legs were at like more pronounced sharp angles and things. And what if instead of just having one line, what if it had texture to it? The webbing simple ideas, seemingly revolutionary, completely changed the way the character would be drawn forever. I think there are very few artists who after initially creating the character's iconic look, which isn't necessarily the first stab, like the original, the, the yellow daredevil is not our favorite daredevil. It's always yeah. the red, although I kind of liked the way it looked in She-Hulk, but I thought it worked. Ketchup and mustard. I didn't really love that much. <laughs> eh, I'll let it, I, I, I thought it was kind of neat. I don't know if I wanted to stick with it, but seriously, McFarlane put a stamp on that character in a way that very few people have ever done with any character. And I think it's if, if that was part of my legacy and I understand if I got a little tired of it, fine, but I'd be very proud of that. Yeah, like I look at it, it's like it's Ditko, John Romita Sr., McFarlane. Like they were the ones who defined the look of the character like mm. for like yeah. very long periods and everybody wanted to do that. Now, speaking of McFarlane looking to the future, I just want to drop this in real quick. In the junk drawer section here, they review this new PlayStation game, Spawn the Eternal. And these, this is the description they're providing. This 3D fighter, users are given the ability to rip off a foe's limb and beat them silly with it. <laughs> Which, you, no, they hadn't done that in Mortal Kombat yet. Like it's amazing like it took the mind of todd mcfarlane <laughs> uh, that was actually in the ad the print ad for i kind of remember the that ripped yeah. off arm that's like bleeding on the ground and that was like the selling point for the game look man america had spawn fever all right <laughs> that movie made 500 million dollars that hbo series ran for two th- for 200 episodes uh it was a big deal no it wasn't uh spawn was interesting <laughs> spawn was interesting because i think everyone in comics loved spawn at the very least visually even though most people couldn't remember the plot after the first 10 up 10 issues the movie it's not not very good i know but you you brought up the max earlier and i feel like it's the same thing it's like this is a visual cool thing and everybody loves the visual of spawn but yeah they can't tell you the details or what i what what's really interesting about spawn and the max is that they actually both had very good animated series yeah 
the HBO Spawn series, which had this like kind of like Crypt Keeper intro from Todd McFarlane, where he tried to make himself <laughs> seem like a total badass and like, go make your toys, Todd. They were, it was beautifully animated. It was pretty good. And then MTV's adaptation of the first 12, 15 issues of the Max is really accurate and it's really stylish and the voice acting is excellent and it captures the tone. It was great. Yeah, it was that great. Was great. Oh, so good. The only weird one was like there was the one issue of the Max that like had like a crossover with like a like they incorporated like a villain from Savage Dragon and they had to like not use that character and that one episode got really confusing because they didn't really work anymore. But like beyond that, it was just such a damn good show. Yeah, I mean it shows really how far a good animated series can like just cement a character in the pop culture consciousness and say, Oh, I love the Max. What do you know about the Max? It was a good cartoon, it was cool, it was MTV, mm-hmm. you know, and you're like, Okay, that's mm-hmm. good enough, you know. It made it its impression. Uh, now, I will say the Ghibli news in this issue is the same Ghibli uh, news we've had for the past three issues. Talking about his C23 game. We don't need to get into that. So let's get into our tally here. In this issue, Ghibli was mentioned six times. Todd McFarlane was mentioned five times, which brings our running total to <laughs> Ghibli, 473 mentions. Todd McFarlane, 445. So You eight- can do it, Todd! <laughs> Hang in there. That's where you're still pulling for me. He was ahead for so long. And a then long time. Just, yeah, then he disappeared. All yeah. right. Well, now, Michael, it's time to close this thing out. Hopefully, we can get a few more laughs out of it. Let's see where it takes us in. Karak's Top 10. This installment of Turok's Top 10, the top 10 reasons that JLA won't be helping Batman during the Batquake because they're jerks. <laughs> That's the real reason. I think we can That's, all agree. Like, I was a little busy. Yes. Really? You're the Flash. <laughs> what are you doing? People are suffering. People are like trapped under. You've got Two-Face pulling people out of the rubble. The Flash can't be bothered. What the hell? <laughs> Seriously. Number 10. Confused Quake with toasted oat breakfast cereal. Figured bats could handle this thing solo. Wow. Quake and Quaker oats. Oh, that's that's wizard wow that, yeah. that's a stretch <laughs> wizard, when wizards thought Boo. they were funny man oh my god oh, all right, all right. number nine again. number nine entire team in sugar-induced coma after the annual release of cadbury's cream eggs that one makes sense yeah <laughs> number eight batman's whole youthful ward and tights thing finally skeeved them out and yeah that's overdue <laughs> yes number seven the bridge into gotham is down that's literally the plot of the comic yeah it's, huh? it's literally the yes and that's the not plot even of the dark joke. night rises and... yeah, right. <laughs> number six too busy rereading the rock of ages storyline from jla's number 10 through 15 and trying to figure out what the blank was going on <laughs> also fair uh number five they don't want to lose their spots in line for titanic wow that's right when did this issue come out this is early 98, so I think Titanic was end of 97, right? Or All right, so then it was still yeah. it was still a juggernaut then. I was just yeah. I thought it was a little later in the year. Fair enough. All right. Number four, unwritten rule. Avoid anything that smug Batman prefaces with bat, bat cave, batmobile, <laughs> bat quake, that pompous ass. 
<laughs> I like that one. <laughs> Number three, everyone's busy taking literature and physics classes so they can handle whatever JLA writer Grant Morrison throws at them. <laughs> That's actually kind of funny. I'll give That's it that. pretty good. I like that uh, one. Number two, heard about Clooney's paparazzi boycott, got confused, boycotted everything dealing with Batman. Ooh, wow. <laughs> Deep cut. Yeah. yeah. And the number one reason why the JLA won't be helping Batman during the Batquake, earthquakes are definitely beneath the world's most pretentious super team. Good double joke there. Yeah, it, is. it really is. They, they didn't uh, do too bad on that one. Nothing too no. offensive this time. This around. is, a, I, I would say, there was a couple of duds in the jokes, but there wasn't anything that was like ooh cringeworthy. Yeah. I, 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 there were some cringe jokes throughout the issue. I remember they had a section that was like a trivia test, and there was all multiple choice, and some of the multiple choices, and even some of the questions, were like, "Oh no, don't make that joke! Don't make that joke!" That's a little disappointing. I know that there was a different time, but it's still, yeah. it's still it doesn't age well. Yeah. Well, Bibbs, this has been so much fun. You were definitely the right guy to call. You showed up, you brought the knowledge, just top of your head. It was amazing to hear your thoughts and your opinions on everything here. But if people want to get more, they haven't gotten enough just yet. Where can they find your work? Well, I mean, I sometimes write reviews for The Wrap. I write some articles for Slash Film. Uh, But the majority of what I produce is up on the Critically Acclaimed Network, which is a podcast network that I co-host with Whitney Seibold, another critic in Los Angeles. Uh, It's available wherever fine podcasts are podcasted you can get on spotify apple Podcasts, wherever that is a series of shows we have a show called critically acclaimed our flagship show where we review new movies we have a show called thank godzilla it's friday which is pretty new we are watching every single film in the godzilla series and that's been a lot of fun we've got a show called canceled too soon where we review tv shows that lasted only one season or less that was on hiatus for a while we just brought back a special episode of it because we finally unearthed maybe the most canceled tv show in tv history a sketch comedy show from 1969 called Turn On, which was canceled during the first commercial break. So that's pretty sweet. Uh, and that was a fun episode. Uh, but we also have a lot of cool stuff over at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. We have a series of exclusive shows over there. Our current shows over there are only the best. We review every single film ever nominated for Best Picture in order. We're currently in the 1950s. So there's a big back catalog. We have a show called All Our Yesterdays. We review every single episode of Star Trek in order. And we're currently about halfway through Star Trek The Next Generation. So we've got about a 200 episode back catalog. If you sign up, you get all of that available to you right away we do uh, trivia nights with our patrons we have other bonus podcasts as well commentary tracks and the like Uh, i'm also on social media i'm trying to be on twitter less but i am on twitter at william bibiani our show is on twitter at critic acclaim and i am currently uh, spending more time on blue sky at william bibiani but i'm also on instagram and other places at william bibiani as well yeah so check it out guys lots of fun stuff over on the critically acclaimed network i've been listening for years so i highly recommend it of course you know where to find us where are we at michael point them to the world of wizards the podcast guide to comics so on instagram it's wizards underscore comics on facebook Facebook, it's Wizards Comics. You can go to our website, wizardscomics.com. We have a YouTube channel, which is the podcast guide to comics. We have our Patreon, which we've got some wonderful subscribers. And Speaking of those great patrons, it's time to shout them out. Seems like every episode we have somebody new to shout out, and this time around it's Dallibor. Yes, recent guest, publisher of Catalyst Magazine, the indie hype man himself, who had been listening to the entire back catalog of episodes, finally reached the end and said, well, now I need the uncut stuff. Now I need it 
early. So Dalibor, welcome, buddy. And we have a JS. We have Andrew. We have Evan Bryant, Gary Hutcherson, Fernando Pinto, Jeremy Daw, Greg Schuler, Meltface Killer, Brian Acosta, Steve King, Dead of Jedi, Mitchell Hall, Lee Markowitz, Stephen Forshaw, Mickey and Jason at the Retro Network, and of course, Mark McDonald. Thank you so much, everybody, for staying subscribed, staying connected to Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. We continue to enjoy our association with you and, of course, your support of the podcast. But hey, stay tuned for the next episode because we are going to be talking Batman. Yes, the Wizard Batman special that came out in 1998. Special guests for that event include Lee Markowitz. Yes, one of our patrons who we just shouted out. Great guy, ready to chat the bat. Uh, It's going to be a very, very fun time. So check for the bat signal in the sky. But hey, until next time, keep your books bagged and boarded. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.